Today I'm speaking with Darren Brown. Darren, as many of you know, is a fantastic magician. He calls himself a psychological illusionist, which is to say that the effects he achieves really are at the level of manipulating the behavior of his subjects. Uh, he uses hypnosis and other forms of suggestion. Uh, he creates the most elaborate ruses by which to manipulate people's expectations and assumptions. If you've seen any of his television specials, you'll know that he puts people in situations where literally everyone around them is an actor who's in on the gag, and people just have no way of understanding what is happening to them, and so he can drive them to do things that are really astonishing. Uh, in fact, if you haven't seen any of Darren's work, I would strongly encourage you to pause this podcast and go on YouTube and watch some of the many fragments of his specials that you can find there, or better yet, go on Netflix and watch his most recent one, Sacrifice, or Miracle before that, or The Push. Uh, we talk about all of these, and you'll certainly get the gist of our conversation if you haven't seen his work, but you'll enjoy it much more if you have, because it really is hard to exaggerate how ambitious these changes in people's behavior are and how successful Darren is in producing them. It really is amazing. Anyway, we talk about his career as an illusionist, his reliance on hypnosis and other forms of suggestion and manipulation. Uh, we talk a little bit about his book, Happy, where he goes into the value he's drawn from Stoic philosophy and his other thoughts on how to live a good life. Anyway, Darren is a very thoughtful, interesting, uh, and extraordinarily nice person, and it was a great pleasure to sit down with him. So I hope you enjoy his company as much as I did. And now I bring you Darren Brown. I am here with Darren Brown. Hi. Darren, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. This is yeah. so exciting. Thank yeah. you for having me. Yeah. No, really, it's a treat. I've known I had to get you on the podcast for a very long time because you're quite literally one of my most requested guests. And Really? Yeah. But it's never come together. And then it always seemed that there was a some prospect of you coming to the States. But I, you, know, you and I connected in London recently when I had that event with Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. But we didn't record there. But now you are in And then we bonded over America. old fashions yes. afterwards. Yeah. That was nice. That's a, an appropriate way to bond. So... There are quite literally too many things to talk about, a ton that we can get into. Let's start with how you describe yourself as a psychological illusionist. Yeah. What are you doing as a magician? I mean, there's, there's so many, you do many things that I think a lot of people don't know about, but obviously we're going to be talking about your recent specials and your, and your magic, but how do you describe your approach to magic? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I mean, even that term psychological illusionist, I came up with in a panic when I was asked right at the start of my career what it is that, what it is that I do. I started off as a hypnotist when I was at I studied law and German at university in mm -hmm. Bristol in England. Did you actually get a degree as a lawyer? I did. I, I didn't oh. want to be a lawyer or a German. Yeah. Um, Think so about I, what a good lawyer you could be with your skills now, though. Well, you, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, it's such a, it's a big, it, just, that was, it was very little interest, really. So yeah. I, um, but I got the degree. But, but in my first year, I saw a hypnotist perform, and I, so I started off with that. And uh, I 
bought, borrowed, stole books I could find on it. I uh, I was the guy at university who could hypnotize you, so I had lots of people turning up to be hypnotized. So, so that was. Did you, did you formally study it in a psychology department? No, or? no, 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 not at all. It was just just self taught. I had huh. a couple of. I remember a couple of seminal moments. I had a. I, I would often people would come over and I'd hypnotize them and I'd say. If you come back, if I click my fingers and tell you, if I click my fingers, you'll go straight back to sleep. So it would save time, right? If they came back the next week and right. wanted to try something else. And I remember this guy coming around who I presumed I'd seen before. And I said, okay, sit down, look at me. And I clicked my fingers and I said, sleep. And he went back into this, what I presumed was back into this trance state, whatever that is. Anyway, and then we did a few things. And then afterwards we spoke and he hadn't been, he hadn't, I'd never met him before. So I had this moment of, well, I, how did you know to respond to me clicking my fingers and saying sleep? And I realized sort of at that point that so much of it depended not on these long sort of scripts that I was learning and that, that side of technique, but just kind of my confidence in the moment and their own bewilderment, perhaps, obviously their own suggestibility. So things like that were taught me a lot. And then I, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult way of earning a living. And I was, I was graduating and I uh, was just starting to scrape a living together. So I, I did more magic, like close-up magic, that kind of thing. But the psychological stuff interested me more, the suggestion-based stuff. So did you learn it from books, or did you actually have a teacher who was a hypnotist? I, no, I didn't. I, I continued learning the hypnosis from, from books. This was pre-the like the days of There were YouTube, no YouTube videos. No, nothing. This was like 1935. <laughs> and uh, I ended up doing a lot more magic, but I... I Found the the mind reading plots more interesting than you know making someone's card disappear, and so it, it, mentalism mentalism is the technical name for it. Well, I, so I ended up I wrote a couple of books for magicians. I was earning a living in Bristol, this said uh, this city in the west of England, going around you know tables in restaurants and doing people's parties, and then I got a phone call from this TV production company that were looking for someone that did mind reading. And there were really only, I could only think of like four or five people in the country that did it. Mentalism, was that it esoteric? Was, huh. Yeah, just no one really, no one, it just wasn't very commercial. And yeah. uh, well, so To give people a sense, many people will be familiar with your work, but just give an example of the kind of thing a mentalist like well, yourself does on stage with people. It's, it's sort of, it's magic with a mind reading plot essentially but i mean i suppose someone that passes themselves off as psychic could be technically a mentalist so there's a wide range because i said not that many people do it so there's kind of a wide range of what people do when they do it now there's a lot more of them and that's probably partly because i was making it popular in the in the uk so if you were a young magician i guess you know growing up and i was you know a kind of a role model i suppose for some so there's a lot more mentalists now but it was the, the we were very few and far between before do your powers of mentalism extend to dogs? Can you get it that? does sound like yeah. a dog in the background. Yeah, yeah, right. I think it's someone moving plates or cutlery. Oh, okay. It might be building, right. but it does well, sound like a dog. Maybe I just, that's a powerful suggestion I just gave you, that it's a dog. <laughs> so that was that. And then I, yeah, I, but now I, um, essentially at its heart, a magician is just saying, look at me, aren't I clever? That is sort of, that's the only subtext. So as I grew up, I sort of grew out of that initial urge and the desire for uh, the sort of controlling thing, which hypnosis is, you know, is, Certainly ticks that box if you mm -hmm. if you're insecure and those things are important to you, which I was. Did you ever go down the path of 
hypnosis as therapy? As to... therapy. I thought about it. I think ultimately I didn't really want to sit and get in there with people's problems. To yeah. people's problems day after yeah. day. Now, I mean, now I find, not so much hypnotherapy, but psychotherapy I find fascinating. That world I do find. I sort of mm. loved it. Part of me would love to do that. But no, I sort of, the, the, the performing came together in such a way that I had to kind of at some point choose and go, you know, I'll concentrate on this. But now I, it's quite a, I mean, I'm not very well known in the States at all, but in, in the UK, I kind of do a variety of things. I, I do stage shows every year that are like old fashioned magic shows, really. Again, with kind of a, you know, mind reading sort of feel to them. And uh, I do these TV shows now on Netflix, which are, Again, they're very different, but they're sort of, what I've done is I've tried to take a step back and I, I kind of figure that it's dramatically more interesting if you're watching a real person go through a real situation. So the deception is now all out on the surface. So you're, as a viewer, you're invited into the deception. Right. And it's, the deception is, is happening on somebody that's going through something they don't right. realize. Well, I want to talk about several of your specials in, in detail, but before we get there, let's just talk for a second about hypnosis so mm. it's a hypnosis is a topic that isn't often touched i don't think it came up once while i got a phd in neuroscience right i'm, right. Sure, I'm sure there's a there's been some neuroscientific work done on hypnosis the only time i touched it as a topic academically i, I was freshman year at stanford where i think stanford still has the scale of oh, yes. hypnotic susceptibility right. yeah, i think yeah scale. i think it, it, yeah. it predates my time there but i remember being tested on this scale because they were looking for good and, and bad subjects to do research and which were you in, in, i think it was a 10 point scale and i think i was a nine on the 10 wow. so I, I was on that side of the tail and then i remember going through these various exercises and the experience that proved to me that this wasn't just total bullshit that this there was something to this was we were regressed to how was it put they asked us to imagine that we are eight years old i think or seven years old and sign our names mm. and without any conscious forethought the script that came out of my signing was just this bubbly childlike script that was totally familiar to me as something the way i would have written my name as a seven-year-old and it was not at all the way i wrote my name as a 18 year old and then he asked put the the year and i remember marveling at the fact that without any conscious arithmetic you know i was putting down the yeah. right year from yeah. you know that, that did age. you ever compare the handwriting you know if it was actually i don't remember going back and finding a sample of my handwriting if i could have but it was just the spitting image of the kind of writing yeah. and and i just remember it feeling like an automaticity that I was mm. not, you know, I wasn't gaming the system, you know, trying to impress myself with mm. hypnosis working. And I, I've spent no time studying it since, but it's one of these topics where I think you can talk to scientists who are still in doubt as to whether or not it's actually a bona fide phenomenon. And then it obviously connects to vaudevillian applications of it, which where, where, and it seems appropriate to wonder whether there's a fraud associated with what you're seeing on stage. So what is your understanding of the reality of hypnosis as a psychological process that can be invoked on I, stage? I used to do a, um, in a, when I performed stage hypnosis, which I don't anymore, but I, I try and find other ways of employing it. But I used to finish with saying that I'd make myself invisible so the subjects wouldn't be able to see me. 
And then say so I'd, I'd float a chair around and they'd all, you know, scream and run around. And it was, uh, you know, a fun bit in the show. But then I often used to have questions and answers afterwards. And I remember once I, I got, say there were 10 guys, I got them up and said, well, what, what was your actual experience when I was saying I was invisible and mm. moving a chair around? What, what were you actually experiencing? And there were some that were saying, well, you know, I, I, yeah, I was just felt like I should play along. But yeah, you were obviously just moving the chair around yourself. Then there were people that would say, well, I, I kind of, I knew you were doing it, but I had just had to, emotionally, I could only react as if that thing was floating, even though, yeah, of course, when I think back as well, I, I, yeah, you're obviously there doing it, but I, I, I kind of was disregarding that. And a range of reactions right through to, there's no way you were moving that chair because that was, that was floating. I, you know, they're more happy to believe it was on wires than it was me. Now, I still don't know whether that whole discussion is colored by the fact that some people want to appear to be better subjects than others. But certainly right. what is clear is that the range of experience is so varied. I always think of it as a sort of, like an actor getting into a part, you, you can get totally emotionally lost in something. It doesn't mean that anything untoward is, is happening. Uh, I, well, I, are you ever, have you experimented with giving people post-hypnotic suggestions that they seem to be genuinely unaware of so that they're doing things that originate in a truly unconscious space in their minds and, and you've you've yeah, put the again, seed there because you can never really climb into anyone's head to really know i remember telling a, a, a friend of mine that he was he'd find himself invisible and he was really he was laughing he was looking down and saying it's just like looking at a footage of like the carpet and you know i'm just it's like i'm looking out of a a camera i, I, I think one of the most for me, one of the most interesting experiences of it was I did a show called um, The Assassin. So Stephen Fry is right. going to get yeah, shot yeah. by this guy. And we had this sort of first part was just looking at hypnosis. What is it? What are the limitations of it? So this is a just give people yes. the, the, yes. okay. the setup here. So how is Stephen Fry going to get shot? Yes, I throw these things away. <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of used to them. Yeah. All right. So the, the show was actually looking at the claims made by Sahan Sahan over the assassination of Bobby Kennedy him saying that he was hypnotized by the CIA. So we kind of, well, is it, if we take what his claims are, is that even feasible that that could happen? Or is it just the stuff of, you know, just fiction? Right. So as close as we could, we kind of replicated his story and did it with a guy that didn't know that that was the plan for him. So we found a very highly suggestible guy, even more suggestible than you, I'm sure. Right. And there was only one point on the scale, if I recall. Only that, one that, guy. Okay. <laughs> and uh, the show begins with finding that guy from a sort of a big audience of, of people who are volunteering and ends with him in a situation which he doesn't know is being filmed with a gun that he thinks is real. All the triggers going off, the polka dot dress and all these things that Sahan Sahan said the, said the CIA had used. And will he do it? Will he in that situation fire a gun, which he believes is real, at somebody and, and seemingly shoot them? But there was this really interesting bit at the beginning. So I've got these two clinical hypnotists, psychologists with me as well. And we did two tests. One was the acid test, which is where the, where the notion and the phrase comes from, where you have somebody hypnotized, you give them what you've shown them is acid before they're hypnotized, but actually it's just water. And you say, when you wake up and you get the signal, you'll throw this acid in someone's face. Right. So it's an interesting thing. Like if they, if they're playing along at any level, of course, they're not going to do that. They all did it. But 
it's a TV studio. They know no one's really going to give them, you know, acid to do that. So part of the brain you get, part of them is going to know this is, right. this is safe. And that's fine. That's what we imagine they do. But then towards the end, we had this guy in an ice bath. And this was the guy that we used in the end. And we just had no idea if he was going to do it or not. Either way, it was fine for the show. If he didn't do it, that was interesting. If he did do it, that was interesting. And he did very happily. He got in this ice bath and lay there and there was no, it didn't seem, they're actually, they had a bet backstage, like a wager as to whether or not he'd do it. They thought he wouldn't do it. I had no idea. But there didn't seem to be the sort of thing that you could just play along. Yeah. Pretending on, not to yeah, find a cold. Exactly. Yeah. Just kind yeah. of pretend not to, uh, not to find that, you know, intensely painful. And that's one of the very like few moments that I've had of just being really surprised by it. The other thing that surprises me is, again, if, if it's just sort of a playing along, is behaviors that people wouldn't know to do that get shared across, say, an audience. So very often I'm, I'm doing this with an audience of 2,000 people mm. and then walking out amongst those people that have responded who say are now standing, eyes closed, like, you know, head dropped down. Right. In your special before the most recent one, Miracle, Miracle you did yeah. this, right? Let's dive into some of what you're doing here mm -hmm. with the specials, because it's not, there's hypnosis, which is this one specific activity of inducting someone into a state and mm. leading them to do various things, uh, you know, post-hypnotically. But you're also just playing with people's suggestibility yeah. a lot. You're pre-screening your audiences in many of these specials yeah. in ways that sometimes I guess they know they're being pre-screened. Sometimes they have no idea. They think yeah. they're taking a course in you know, self-improvement or whatever yeah. it is. And you are continually selecting for yeah. the most suggestible people or the most conforming people, mm. whether it's they're conforming to social pressure or showing themselves to be vulnerable to you just you know, dropping the right words into their, into yeah. their heads. Yeah. So... You've had so many specials that I would love to talk about, but should we go chronologically? I want to talk about The Push, mm -hmm. and I want to talk about Miracle, and I want to talk about Sacrifice. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. uh, those so are the three most recent ones. So yeah. that oh, is it? Okay. So let's talk about The Push. What did you do there? So The Push, the push was looking at social compliance, and it was a, a big, dark, fun, funny kind of experiment. It took, we did it over... A, a weekend to see if somebody could be made to commit murder through just through social compliance. So there's a big event that this guy finds himself at. Everyone's an actor apart from him. He has no idea it's being filmed. He's applied to be in the show months ago and then, you know, told he hadn't got it. So he just finds himself at this event and bit by bit, starting with, he sort of gets roped into helping at the event. So starting with him being asked to mislabel meat sausages, meat right. sausage rolls as vegetarian. Yeah. And him kind of, you know, going along with that, it builds and builds and builds to the point that he pushes or doesn't push someone off a roof. By stages, you're selecting for somebody who is willing to, under some pressure of authority, it's like yeah. a mini Milgram experiment. In fact, you actually yeah. do the Milgram experiment in yeah. that. Episode, in a different, correct? that was a different, but yeah, but we used Oh, it was yeah, a different, yeah. okay. Um, we, did a, we did a compliance test, which is the bell test you may have seen where people are coming in, you've got a, being made to stand up and sit down when they hear a bell because the first yeah, few people in exactly. the row are actors yeah. and then you build the line up the actors right. then leave and now you've got a room of people doing it for no for right. no reason just out of again just out of compliance so yeah so we've chosen this guy he's then told he's not used and then sometime later he just is at this event that we've you know right. constructed this whole way of getting in there without him knowing it's anything to do with us 
So he's at an event where literally everyone in sight is in on the gag. Yeah. But he's just surrounded by actors yeah. and doesn't know it. Absolutely. Watching it, it's pretty remarkable to realize how unusual a circumstance that is and how we are not prepared to interpret reality with mm. that being one of the possible explanations for what's going on. Absolutely. Right? Well, the, the, the fear that we've had over the years of, you know, what if, what if he spots a camera or what if there's a glitch in this Truman Show-like fiction? But of course, the reality is, if you were in a, if you were in a restaurant and a camera fell out from behind the curtains, you, you wouldn't think... Everyone here is an everyone actor. Everyone here is an actor. This yeah. whole thing is some yeah. elaborate... You know, you just thought, oh, a camera's falling out from behind the curtains. You wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily make, that, make right. that all about, you know, right. make the whole thing it's about It's all you. about me, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. there have been moments when, uh, you know, a, ca a camera been, has been spotted or just some, something like that has happened and we're all, you know, suddenly all sphincters are tight and it's fine. You know, nothing, nothing bad happens at all. So we've kind of, uh, kind of got used to it, but it's, we, yeah, we've kind of got good at being able to create and hold these elaborate. There's a whole other show with each one of these and just how you create that, how you create the fiction, how you get the guy to the point that, because also these people have to be, you have to make sure they're robust enough psychologically to go through these quite dark journeys. So they have to be independently vetted. This is my daughter's, my 10-year-old daughter's question for you is... <laughs> how do you know they're fine? How are you not in jail for what you put people through? That's her literal wording. Because you're putting, I mean, some of these, some more than others, but for instance, the push, there is a real ethical question about what you're doing here. Because you're, in some cases, you're making people look very, very good. As we'll talk about in Sacrifice, mm. you reveal this person's latent heroism. Mm. But in the push you are revealing a very dark fact about somebody, or at least it can be interpreted as a very dark mm, fact. And mm. how do you view that? I mean, so it's just to fast forward to the punchline of that show, I mean, the, and spoiler alert for anyone who wants to go watch these shows, in some cases, yes, you get someone to reveal that they're capable of murder. Yeah. You know, he shoves a guy off a rooftop based on all the suggestibility that you have engineered in him. That doesn't look great on his CV, does it? <laughs> well, I, I, that I think the push was, I think, uniquely dark and unredemptive. And was it two of the three people? It did was it? four in the end. Yeah, four, four okay. of them, and three out of the four did. Three it. out of the four did. Yeah. The way I, the way I see these things with with all of the shows, and I always have well, with any of the shows, regardless of whether it's sort of a you know a, a happy ending or whatever it brings out in the person, they're always they're very often going through a kind of a dark period of the sort of journey at some point. So I do get asked about ethically how they can be justified. My feeling is I'm really only interested in this one person's experience that is going through it. So in the push, for example, it's, it's hard to talk about without giving it away, but the guy, the guy that doesn't do it has been through hell to get there, yeah. but he feels great about himself. So his very happy with the experience. And then the, the, the careful situation is, is framing the whole thing for the others. So by the point they come to do it, there are so many things that I've layered in during their, what has essentially been their audition process, that they don't realize it's an audition process. The number of meetings that they've had, they think they're one of 300 people doing that. But actually by this point, it's only that five. There's things that can be layered in so that very quickly, obviously at any point during, I can you know step in and if need be, and the whole thing. But also afterwards, the whole thing can be framed very quickly for them, again, as something positive. And that, that's probably the most 
difficult, not difficult, but the most, uh, of, of all the situations of having to make sure that something is a positive experience for them to take away, mm. that's probably the most, like, would appear to be the most kind of conflicting. But actually for them, they all found it very positive because their feeling is, I've now been through this, and yes, I did that, but most people do, and that's what we've shown. That's right. never like anything unusual about me because that's yeah. what most people do. But I'm, I'm now armed with an experiential, you know, well, that experience of having done it. So if ever I find myself in a situation where I'm going to get manipulated, I've been through that now and I can stand up to it. And, and that's, kind, that's the key to me. And then obviously these are all people that remain friends and we all keep in touch. And mm -hmm. None of them have had that other thing we might think of, well, that means they're not going to get a, a job or, you know, people are right. fascinated by their experience, but none of them have had those, those right. troubles. But I think that show is unique in that, that that question is, I think, probably most obvious with that as mm. well. You know, are those people okay? And the answer is they are. They always are. Everyone that's done these things comes out of it saying it's, you know, it's the best thing they've ever done. And that ultimately, to me, is what matters, even though, of course, I understand people stepping back from it and going, well, how can you, how can you justify it and so on? Yeah. So then there's the flip side of your experience and the necessity to deceive people to just get this show up and running mm. how do you navigate that ethically and because they know what they're getting into they're applying for my shows and they know the sort of things that that i do right and i think i think it's a end justifying the means thing i think for you know if somebody's going to go through something that takes there's a lot of manipulation involved but the end result is a mm. is a hugely positive one for them i think it's i think that's okay to compare this to normal magic or normal yeah. illusion so your normal stage magic is a situation where there's a trick you as a professional ma magician don't want to reveal how the trick is done yeah. it's not done the way it seems to be done it seems to be done by magic and there's some terrestrial answer compatible with the laws of physics that explains how the trick is done and that's the part you don't reveal with these manipulations of people they're absolutely what they are if that's what you're asking yeah my, no, my question is no... is there any distance between the audience's final appreciation of what has happened and what has in fact happened no not at all not at okay. all there are sometimes scenes that don't make it scenes that have to get you know squashed down and bits that as you will be editing anything so right. i mean phil in sacrifice for example had um a couple of experiences that didn't make the final show and there was a whole lot of other stuff we did with all the applicants that took part in the show that didn't make it so there's always things like that that's just part of putting a yeah a you show just, together to edit, no yeah. in, in terms of you know is he playing along or is he does he know more about what's going on than i'm letting on or anything right. like that then no right. it would be it would be pointless and just sort of repugnant as well i think we are yeah. artistically repugnant and yeah. just pointless to do that well yeah so but it would be a, a kind of fraud but it's interesting to consider that it's they're just gradations of fraud which account for magic. It's, it's hard to know really where the line is. Yeah, I suppose so. But I think you then it's It's a different category of Yeah, I I I for me I the the as I said, the fiction is something that we're sharing in, the deception is something we're sharing in. And I, I save the the kind of theatrical deception that everybody knows that it's part of the game for the stage shows now. Right. So I think that kind of makes that makes sense. And even then I I, I try and push it in a to a place that it's I, I guess, cause, you know, I'm 47 and doing magic is quite a childish thing. So I try and find more interesting things to do with the, with the sort of technologies of magic, I guess. And, and which ultimately is just, for me, is just about the stories that people tell themselves. That's, that's kind of my toolkit. So one direction that can go in is creating these 
specials where somebody's put through something and it is ultimately about the stories they tell themselves and and maybe challenging those stories or the limitations of those narratives that they're living out and then i save the more kind of uh yeah, the more just kind of look at me, aren't I clever? But it, right. I still try and do, try and do right. something more interesting with it for the stage. So, yeah, I mean, it seems to me that your, your topic through all of these shows is a question about what are the actual origins of human behavior and what role belief and framing and expectation and suggestion and environment play in all of that. You really are doing a real-time psychological study of people in odd situations and it's fascinating to watch but there are these moments where the effect you're achieving seems impossible i actually can't remember which show this was this could be they're smithereens for me because i my daughter and i binge watched so many of them in pieces but you had one where based on the mere association of a few things like the sound of music playing from a passing car oh yeah, yeah you got people to basically perform an armed robbery yeah. of the pinkertons or the brinks people who were bringing money to in or out of a bank and the idea that that suggestion could be that powerful that someone would have you know yeah but it's not just it's not just music from the car i mean that there's a whole process that you follow of of basically conditioning which is essentially the same in sacrifice and i've used this process a lot I, yeah. I i tend to sort of think well i need to get somebody to this point so how does that break down in terms of the things they need to feel at that point and then eliciting those feelings attaching them to some sort of trigger so that you know it's it's the same as if you i always think of the example of breaking up with somebody and having a horrible time doing that but there's a song that's just playing a lot on the radio at the mm. time and then you don't hear it for five years and then you hear it again and it just immediately right. just brings you back into that state. But here we have a complex behavior that is not only starkly antisocial, but can send someone to prison, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, this is a, a major decision to rob a bank. Right? Yeah, yes, it was to hold, holding up a... Holding, holding up, a holding up the, the security guard. But what I'm doing, but you're sort of... I'm presenting those triggers. So there were like three or four, I can't even quite remember what they all were, but three or four different different triggers and then this sort of tantalizingly available scenario which is again probably yeah. quite unrealistic but right so it's just all it's just all so kind of impossibly fortuitous that it all happens so I, right. I don't to me it isn't a surprise i think well well the surprise is i think over the years that people do just sort of follow these tracks that if you pick somebody that's suggestible you pick the right sort of person and they've been through this transformative Thing that's lasted for however long we've been filming for built up these associations it's going to happen i mean if you imagine if you imagine it was a room of people some of those people in the room you get would do it but then yeah. what would be the difference between those people and the others well they'd probably be more suggestible those those ideas would be would be dropping in at a much more impactful level than most of the room but then those are the people i'm using i mean it, they're kind of experiments in one sense in another sense they, i mean they're clinically not really that interesting because it's not like I'm doing it with a large number of people or I haven't, I haven't got a control group in the, you know, in the next room doing it without the various triggers. Well, well you keep them, so. losing your control group. You keep just not yeah, selecting exactly, those people. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So yeah. it's, it's more of a kind of, here's an emotional journey to go through and maybe that might make you think about things, you know, in your own life. It's more of that kind of world. I see it more as a sort of kind of a drama ultimately, but the, the mode, the feeling of an experiment is, is the way that that's 
expressed. What's your take on free will, given the fact that you manipulate people wherever you go to do things that they can't explain? I like I, I like that there's both. I like that if you look at it in one way, of course there's no free will. You can look at it another way and you can go, yes, but ultimately we can we can exercise our choice and make a difference to a situation. And I sort of I'm quite happy to I'm quite happy to sit with both. I know uh-huh. I feel silly saying this saying this to you, but um <laughs> Well, no, there's definitely one level at which it makes conventional sense to talk about choices. I mean, choices are the proximate cause of the thing you then decide to do. But when you try to figure out where your choices come from Mm. and just how much control you as the witness of your experience had over those variables, Mm. you know, from genes on up. Of course, yeah. But I still think, I still think I, I... there was that experiment at the Max Planck Institute with the um, this idea is where this idea came that we make our decisions uh, anything up to seven seconds unconsciously before we before we make them conscious. You know, you must know this with the, yeah, we, the subjects well, yeah, of yeah. pressing well, uh, a, a or B, and they're like Benjamin LeBay, yeah, the, that's the, the, it, the isn't Le, it? LeBay yes. experiments, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, those tantalizingly they tell the story of the readiness potential in mm. the premotor cortex being available, in this case, like 500 milliseconds before the motor behavior, or actually 500 milliseconds before the person's subjective report of when they decided to move. So they're, mm-hmm. they're watching a clock that is you know, made so as to make it as easy as possible to discriminate these increments of time. And it's that they're given the simplest possible motor task, you know, hit the button or not, mm-hmm. you know, hit the left button or hit the right button. And they're mind is genuinely open and not committed for whatever period of time and then when they subjectively are aware of having committed they note where the hand was on this special Mm. clock and lo and behold it was a full half second before that Mm. where you could predict with i forget what the actual but didn't it extend to something like, like 90% seven ac- seconds or something ridiculous at one well, point? Well, then, yeah. then there was an fMRI study that pushed that all the way back to like seven seconds yeah. where you could get a better than chance prediction. So I've always found it a strange experiment because it feels, it feels to me <sighs> contaminated by the idea of don't think about it before you do it. So of course you start right. to think about is it A or B and then, I, and then you, but then you, you, could, you could, do you the could, opposite? But, or yeah, I, but you I, could I, suddenly do the opposite. But the truth is all of that research is really a red herring. It's, right. it's, it's okay. not well, that's that... What, that's what it feels I like mean, to me. You, you don't actually need the neurophysiological story to know that there must be some chain of events of which you are not conscious that actually underwrite mm. what you are conscious of and any conscious deliberation would fall into that category. So Yeah, well, I, I have no argument with it. I, I, I enjoy both both sides, I, I, but I, do, I don't think that, um, you know, with obviously what I'm doing, I'm creating the, the illusion of that sort of control most of the time, so I don't, I don't see my work as a sort of... Uh, but you're still putting people in positions where they are strangers to themselves in that they're doing things that they can't account for, but you can account for. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, mean, it, I suppose that, yeah. To, well, a, to I, a remarkable degree. I mean, everyone's doing this to everyone all the time, less systematically. I mean, you know, advertisers are trying to get us to click their links, mm. or and, you know, that's probably the most systematic version that we all encounter. But for you to be 
putting people in situations where you're hoping that at that moment they're going to push a guy off a roof. Mm. And you, but then you, some of them did and some of them didn't. I mean, I'm yeah, laying down well, all these, I'm laying down <laughs> yeah, these tracks for them. Right, right. Seventy five percent did, and yeah. the ones who did did it a hundred percent. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Let's talk about sacrifice because this is a genuine happy ending, and it it's appearing in the context of a political environment where it seems all too of the moment. Give us the setup. What is the show? Well, actually, it was, it was because pu- the the push was the uh, the push was the first show on Netflix. I'd already done it; it'd already been out in the UK before, but it was the first thing on Netflix. And then Miracle, which was my stage show, but Push was right. like the last sort of special that I'd done, and I felt like I had to do something that was sort of the opposite of it, and and was more redemptive and so, so r- rather rather, rather than reveal the a propensity to commit murder to on the life. spot, yeah, yeah, this is the. It's kind this, of the opposite. Yeah, okay. So, um, so what is So the, the premise is using these kind of covert psychological techniques, trying to get a right-wing Trump-supporting American guy with pretty, pretty strong views against illegal immigration, if not immigrants yeah. generally, to take a bullet to lay down his life for a Mexican illegal immigrant, or at least someone he believes is. So that was the premise of the show. It's a crazy premise. It's a crazy premise. I mean, I mean, you could have walked that back a little bit, and <laughs> still, it would have been a, an ambitious undertaking. Yeah, well, it's sort of the way it, when we initially kind of put the show together, I intended it to have more of a overtly kind of political feel to it. So in what you see at the start of the show, which is 100 people coming together, and I'm choosing the guy I'm going to use, we had a whole day of really interesting experiments were going on. We were doing Jonathan Heights work on changing the environment to, he writes about it in The Righteous Mind, I think perhaps it isn't actually yeah. his, but one of his colleagues, but making the room disgusting, leaving right. had fake vomit and a n- nasty smell, and, and the idea is by, by having those feelings of threat and contamination that you could make otherwise liberal-minded people give more conservative sociopolitical answers to questions they'd already right. answered in more liberal ways earlier on, and vice versa, making uh, conservatives more liberal, which is another well-known experiment of inducing a feeling of invincibility first. So you're undoing that feeling of, of, of threat, which seems to be um, allied to uh, more right-wing views. So we did, had a whole load of stuff that was really fascinating. All of this ended up coming out because it felt in the end the show was more elegant to make it about a, a human quality of compassion and kindness and, and, and stepping outside of these kind of political narratives. So in the end, you know, Trump was never mentioned. And, and, and also that thing, if I'm, you know, I'm not American, it's always a bit ugly and uncomfortable when somebody from somewhere else comes in and seems to be passing comment on, right. you know, on your own system. So I, 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 and I think the show's better for it. There was just a lot more that we could have put into it. But in the end, it's, it's a, a story about, I think, Somebody's yeah you know, stepping outside of the constraints of those kind of uh, narratives. Do you have a hard time limit for these Netflix specials? Do they have to come in right at an hour? No, 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 not no? at all, not okay. at all. Uh, I think originally we were imagining it would be like an hour and a half, but as we strip more and more out, and it, it got down, to, I think it's about forty-seven minutes or right. something now, which is what the show, what an hour of TV certainly yeah. used to be with ads in it, at least in the UK. So you've selected this right-wing, somewhat conspiratorial character who is 
opposed immigration and wasn't floridly racist. No, he's not a monster racist. I think which would have been a different show. I think yeah. then it would have been about you know look at look how clever I am to be able to to be able to transform this monster racist guy into a, into yeah. a nice guy, which I didn't want the show to be about. So I wanted somebody you'd kind of relate to. So although at the beginning, what was the worst view he expressed? I can't. Quite, well, I, I, I'm so inundated saying, with this kind of material now, studying white supremacy and all the rest of. <laughs> he was saying, you know, yeah kick them all out and they're going to turn our country to shit and so on. he was quite okay. kind of uh yeah quite clear right in that and um yeah, he actually wanted people kicked out right it wasn't just yeah to, build don't, the wall build a bigger wall but it's um, not just a matter of not letting more in no no it's it just it yeah was, yeah, okay. yeah but you know like a lot okay. of people he's dealing with difficulties in his own life financially and yeah. uh, particularly and he's seeing these you know these what to him are people coming in and Getting free handouts, and it's that it's that sort of narrative that is that he settled into very comfortably. Right. Okay. So, mm. you have the perfect subject. What does he think he's doing in this? He thinks he's taking part in a documentary about cutting edge biotechnology. So he we the first thing we do with him, and we've chosen him, is we tell him, look, you're one of six people that's going to beta test this technology. So we're going to put a microchip in you. So we we. We make a hole in the back of his yeah, neck. Yeah, it's an actual sham surgery. It's yeah. an actual sham surgery. Yeah. We stick a, uh, we show him this this uh, microchip. We don't actually put it in, but he now thinks he's got a microchip, which is somehow talking to this app he has on his phone, and the app allows him to take more control of his life by attaching a feeling of a kind of in, in, an impulse to act, a kind of almost reckless impulse to just act without thinking to a sound, to a little jingle sound. So this allows me to, this is one of the triggers that he, that he, that he gets. It's one bit of the jigsaw puzzle. So I could present that in a way that had nothing to do with the real agenda of the show. So he goes away and he listens to this app and the, uh, the, this, the trigger sound triggers and he associates this feeling of, you know, go for it, just do it with this, with this sound. In the same way that, you know, you watch an ad and it shows plenty of sexy people and then flashes up the product and you think, well, I'll buy that product because It'll make me sexy. So fairly straightforward conditioning. So he has, he has that. That's one bit of the jigsaw puzzle. There's another bit of the jigsaw puzzle, which is feelings of empathy. And essentially, it was those two, those two feelings. It was a, I, wanted to, I wanted to harness a very strong feeling of empathy and a very strong desire to act and trigger those off in this highly dramatic situation he finds in at the end, where he has the opportunity to, to save a life by stepping in and taking a bullet himself right and again this is a, another one of these situations where he's surrounded by actors yeah and has no reasonable way to yeah exactly that. so he, yeah. he has a period of filming with us where he thinks he's doing this documentary but meanwhile there's certain sort of there's hidden camera filming there's other bits that are going on where he's going through this transformative process and then it finishes and he thinks the finishing is over and he goes home he goes back to florida where he lives and time passes and then there's this final scene which is kind of testing he's been through the change really the change he's been through all that mm. now it's testing us to see whether it'll work so we construct this situation where he thinks he, he flies to la to drive down and meet his friend in vegas this is a, something totally separate from us well it mm. isn't we've, yeah. we've we've contrived this ourselves but he thinks it's nothing to do with us at all but the sort of the story gets sort of hijacked the car is in uh breaks down he finds himself in this biker bar this is all now filmed hidden cameras all the bikers are actors 
these two Mexican guys come in, there's a conflict, they get thrown out, they take their revenge by tipping over these guys' bikes, and the conflict escalates to the point they're being held at gunpoint. And he's watching from within a truck. He's sort of been left in a truck. This is going on outside. Yeah. So it was this whole thing of, will he get out the truck? Will he step in? Will he, will he make a stand? Did you only have one subject? You had There's one only roll one of the subject, dice? yeah, which is normal. It was unusual in the push to have more than one. So, you can't so then, really go to all these lengths again and again with more than one person. Okay, so what if he hadn't gotten out of the truck? If he hadn't done it, which kind of gives away the ending that he does, but that's, that's <laughs> no, no, you're setting up a situation where your one subject can either rise to the occasion or not, provide a major payoff for your premise or not, mm-hmm. and. The result, just you know, artistically for you, as having had this idea to do this in the first place, is pretty different. With the push, you had many subjects you were running through, and you could sort of get yeah. it on both sides. Here, you had one shot at it. So, yeah. how do you go into a situation like that where you don't know if this is going to work out? And I could imagine, could fail, and then yeah, what, it could know, fail, yeah, and the yeah. failure could seem pretty underwhelming as far as well, you're, yeah. you're presenting this. The premise. answer to that is, I, I think, just that you 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 t- you allow the story to continue. That there would, if um, I don't want to give away the ending, but if if the guy doesn't do the thing that it's all been leading towards, there are more things you could experiment. Yeah, with or, I think we'd we'd find we'd have that didn't work, and then the story would continue, and we'd find a way of bringing the story to a conclusion that still felt like an amazing ending. Right, but we'd have to just be with the situation a, a, a bit more. And I think that's, that's sort of, I guess that's the, um, that's the advantage of, of it being a television show is that you can write on the, on the hoof. We've had to do this, um, not quite that, but in, the, in Apocalypse, which was a oh, yeah, that was also big insane. old show. Yeah. That, was making, that was ending the world for somebody and then they wake up in this post-apocalyptic zombie-infested world where they basically go through the plot of The Wizard of Oz to find their way back home. But in that story... But, so, but uh, that is yet another story where you, so you've, you've taken complete control of this guy's environment. Yeah. His family is now in on it. Yeah. And you've We've stole, had cameras in his house for like Yeah, you've stolen his months. phone and you've put apps on his phone that deliver him fake news. Fake so, news. So, we're, uh, before fake news was fake news. Right. We're, yeah, we've got control of his TV as well. So we, we record special versions of like topical news programs uh, right, that he right, watches to right, mention right. this asteroid story. Oh yeah, and you had, you had a, a radio station playing something in a public place that he happened to step into, right? Like and a again, bar. And again, a radio station that he knows. And yeah, yeah. So, that he knows. I mean, this is just a completely Orwellian intrusion mm. into his consciousness and you totally. you have given him the experience of the zombie apocalypse. Yeah, right? yeah. completely. Right. But there was a situation in that where in, so the, the main action, once the world has ended, in inverted commas, the main action that follows took place over a weekend where he's in a, like a military em- environment with a, the other people that he's found. Right. And we realized that the, the story wasn't quite going to work because there's this, there was this other character who was kind of the alpha male character and, and Stephen, who's our Mark, who's the guy going through it, he needed to become the alpha male. So we, we realized we had to get rid of this other actor. We had to get mm. rid of his character. So at three in the morning, we're rewriting the story that we then can only feed to this actor through an earpiece because, right. of course, he's, you know, he's in it, living yeah. it out yeah. uh, as it's going on. So, you know, these things do happen. You have the opportunity, if, if necessary, to kind of 
rewrite or extend, and you can still then present that that story. There are failures within um, within sacrifice that are kind of shown and, and embraced. I think you just have to oh, yeah. work I out mean, how to yeah. let that sit honestly right. and transparently at the end if it happens to come at the end. Have you ever had a total failure where the person recognizes exactly how it's a setup and just no. pulls the brakes? No. No. no, that's never happened. The the closest to that was a big show I did on on, on placebo, which involved a um, a big fake kind of pharmaceutical company that were going to administer the placebo to these people that were going through it. So there were a bunch of kind of you know applicants and people that were were going to do this show, and somehow a science student I can't remember I think I think he was a biologist had somehow slipped through the net and was part mm. of this group, and he's walking through this it's a big old big old building which was actually at some point one of those big you know pharmacological companies buildings but now empty but it's now full of actors and everything. anyway he got he took us to one side and said this isn't real right i can right. tell this is fake all their white lab coats are just too white right. it, this isn't this isn't real and i've just looked at some of the leaflets i've just looked behind all the right. all the leaflets apart from the front one are blank and he right. just he'd, he'd had that truman show <laughs> moment right right, right. So we kind of uh, went, okay, all right, well, just um, maybe you want to step out of this one, but just, or, or yeah, I, I think we just sort of, we let him uh, come out of it. But it was uh-huh. kind of, it was, it was interesting. It's kind of exciting when that happens. But in terms of like the guy that's going through it, then no, nothing's ever, nothing's ever fallen apart like that. It was one special you did. I don't know what it was a part of. I just saw the, the individual scene on, the, on a train. I think you're on a New York subway or maybe you're in the tube in London, but you're, just giving people some suggestion that they've forgotten their stop. Mm, mm. And I couldn't figure out how were you doing that because you didn't appear to have time with them beforehand. You just sort of walked up to people cold on the train and said, where are you getting off? And you did some, I forget what the intrusion was, but it seemed yeah. like you were just getting them to just blank on yeah, where they were getting off. Yeah, which is essentially what you're doing. But it yeah. does help having a camera crew with you and this sort of sudden bewildering spotlight that, right. that people are put in and i found that a generally very helpful tool that, and yeah and not everybody of course yeah. and not right. most people but some people just they uh, right. I, I do a similar thing on stage people come up on stage and i know that that moment of stepping out in front of or stepping up onto stage in front of two thousand people and all of which like the audience is generally just sort of a blackness and you've just got a spotlight in your face it's such an odd bewildering bewildering yeah. experience but it's Great for me because I know that person is highly suggestible at that at that point. So it's a, you know, it's a moment to. Well, ha- so so to take that moment as the focus, that has always felt to me that the boundary between suggestion really working and social pressure is very hard to discern because it, yeah. it has to be a, be a sense in many people that they have a sense of what you're going for and they don't want to disappoint you as the performer, mm, mm. right? So where where is the line there between? someone just kind of going along with your gag because they feel like it's the right thing to do and them actually being manipulated by the suggestion. I think there's a really just gray area. I don't, I, and, and ultimately my aim, it, it'll depend on what I'm doing, but say if I'm on, if this is happening on stage, I am probably just trying to harness a particular like theatrical effect. So if like I a person's paralyzed or something. Yeah. Well, if I if so if I rapidly hypnotize somebody and I can see that they're sort of they're just kind of playing along, that might that might be no good for me in terms of what what I want to do with them next because it might not work. So I might have to rethink something. But for the audience, that moment, you know, will 
probably worked just as well if uh, yeah, they as could, if they, they had genuinely yeah. kind of you know so so the situation i'm in often those things don't matter too much because i'm trying to create a, a, a theatrical effect it would be obviously very different in a kind of clinical environment but i'm not ultimately i'm doing these things in the context of entertainment however ultimately if people are just sort of playing along then it's not doesn't normally allow me to do the yeah it'll fail things that it, I, it'll it fail was, somewhere else along the line so right. i've got to rethink something elsewhere or get right. rid of them and get somebody else up and i normally tend to do that so it sounds really harsh doesn't it it sounds horrible but yeah, yeah no, I, well, you know i, I have editing, full license yeah. to be able to send somebody back and get someone else up. yeah and now notice we skipped over miracle do you want to talk about miracle at all because it, this is somewhat related to other things you've done where you have debunked faith healing uh, or at least pressed pretty hard on the claims of faith healers mm. and some of that's been fascinating to see you confront people who are not wanting to admit they're using any of the processes that allow you to do what you're doing mm. but in miracle you essentially perform your own faith healing mm. so what, what happened there mm. it was a really uh it was in terms of the experience of doing a show every night and touring with it it was like it was unlike any any of the other ones I'd, i i had done i'd made a show previously called miracles for sale which in which we took a guy who was um, he was a scuba instructor from England and took him out to Dallas and passed him off as a healer. I, would, mm. I taught him the techniques as I understood them, and then we to see whether he could get away with doing it out there. So, but in doing that, I'd kind of got the bug for doing it myself. It just seemed a really tantalizing thing to try. But of course, with my audiences, because they, they know me and they're skeptical like me, it didn't make any sense to try and do it with an audience that wouldn't be there as believers but i i tried it so miracle was a couple of shows ago so i do i tour every year pretty much in the uk with a stage show and every two mm -hmm. years it's a brand new show and the not the last one but the one before was was miracle which is now on uh, on netflix and so in it i thought well, i'm gonna do this the second half i'll make about faith healing and i'll just say to the audience look i'm sure you don't believe in this any more than me but just come along with it, just do as I ask, and, and because the results, I think, can be extraordinary. So I went out on the first night not knowing really how it would work. I had a couple of sort of, sort of mechanical almost points in place, like tricks, like magic tricks within it that I thought, well, I'm, I can get to the end of, of the show with this, even if, right. even if psychologically it's not really kicking in in between and I can rethink it for the second night. I should at least be able to hit certain points and get to the end of the show. But it actually worked surprisingly well. And not only... Well, how many dates did you have in front of you when you, you're trying this for the first time with one show? Did you have 30 dates on the calendar where you had to tour this? Or? Oh, I, no, I had 150. I had like a right. four, months, oh, wow. four months of doing it every night. And there's no way of... You can practice it in a rehearsal room, but you, until you've got an audience of 2,000 people to see how many, what percentage of that, you know, respond. But it was, it was absolutely fascinating. First of all, I thought... Because you, the first thing you're doing is you're creating adrenaline. So an adrenaline is a painkiller. So I, you know, you, as with a lot of these healers, you, you, you know, you expect to see somebody who said, oh, I had a bad back and now my, my back doesn't hurt. I kind of expected that level of, of mm. healing in inverted commas. But I remember in the first week, a woman came up and she'd been paralyzed down one side of her body all her life. And for the, she was in floods of tears. She was able to move her left arm for the first time since she, she could remember. That was extraordinary. Uh, also, people were responding. They were doing this thing being slain in the spirit, you know, when the, when the healer sort of touches their forehead yeah. and they fall out on the floor. Yeah. Because I'd shown them video, I'd shown them video clips of, so they I had to sort of educate people to know how to respond. So 
showing them clips gets that idea in their head that but that's this is, what's going to happen when I this do This is it. nuts because this is now happening in the context of you being a, a yes. fairly famous skeptic, right? Yeah. I mean, don't people I'm, know I'm sort of playing the part, though. I'm kind of talking the language by this point. So there's this oddly kind of bewildering role-playing, I think, right. that people but are But it is somewhat arch. Into. I mean, you're not actually playing the part. You're not saying, listen, I, I, no, and I'm you're, you're all going to be surprised. I now believe in miracles and you know, I, no, can, I can yeah. heal you. Like you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm still sort of saying, skeptic. I'm now yeah. going to play the part. Come, right. come with me on this. Right, right. So that was extraordinary. So the level of healing, not every night, of course, but the, the, the type of healings were way beyond what I thought would happen. So were there nights where this effect wasn't achieved at all? No, no. It, all, it always worked. But some nights it might be aches and pains that had gone and other nights, probably about probably a good sort of two thirds of the night. There was two thirds of the nights. There'd be something that would be um, like, you know, I remember a guy just had like a trigger finger, which is a horrible thing. You know, he just can't move. uh, You know, your fingers are just locked. He's an old guy and he had it for a long time. And he just, he was able to move his hand and, you know, sort of things that feel really physical. Don't just feel like adrenaline has cured some pain. And then the other level to it that was extraordinary, and of course, now the, in terms of the percentages of response, like we're moving down from 2,000 people to maybe a couple of hundred, maybe that actually come forward, and then right. I'm only getting maybe 10 or so people that are coming up yeah, on but stage. You're, you're grabbing but, half a percent of, I mean, that, yeah, so, that's, exactly. that's, that's so always an ex- extraordinarily yeah. susceptible group for whatever exactly. you're looking for. Exactly. You know? So yeah, yeah we're, I mean, we're going yeah, to be in yeah. an extraordinary era, absolutely. But then the, uh, yeah, the final level was people that, I'm then thinking, well, these people are going to go home and go back to where they were. They're going to revert to, you know, once the adrenaline of the whole thing is over and so on. But again, a, a percentage of now that small percentage of writing to me, a, you know, a year later and saying, just so you know, I, I am still free from, from that problem. I, in fact, recently I, I was filming something and the, um, the makeup artist, lady who was doing my makeup, said her husband had watched the show go out He'd had a golfing injury for three years. He right. watched the show on TV. His golfing injury went. He was so embarrassed by that fact. It took him a year before he told his wife, right. who was then telling me that, right. you know, that that had happened. So admittedly, you know, very small percentages. But what was compelling was just that psychological component of suffering. That was, yeah. a, very, that was a really interesting thing to see play out night after night. That somewhere in that, not just the adrenaline, but... M- more so, the, the the story that people are living out of an affliction or a or a condition that they have, and when that story is interrupted, and they view it differently, it, it's it was it was extraordinary. And then, then, of course, then I start to go mad with it myself. I'm thinking, well, maybe I could I could play stadia with this show and say, well, look, I'm this is only what it is, and but it works for some it works for some people. Yeah. So why don't you come along and I. I but then, of course, well, like we, we never advertised the show as about healing because well, I didn't want people to Call coming. it placebo, and then you're... you're call it placebo. Yeah. Well, exactly. So that whole world of madness yeah, for a but second a, but, you're, but the placebo effect is real. You know, the placebo effect is something when you're testing drugs that you have to... It's a real thing, ...go yeah. up against, and sometimes you can't beat the placebo effect, yeah. or just barely. Yeah. Well, so this links up rather nicely to the topic of your book, Happy, which I'm embarrassed to say I've only just begun, but... You have a lot to say on the topic of human well-being and how to safeguard it and what undermines it, and you've been influenced by Stoic philosophies. How do you think of your own well-being, and what advice do you have for a life well-lived? Well, it, it, it resonated. The Stoics resonated with me 
But the book took me about three years to write. I was writing it while I was on tour. So in sort of three or four month blocks over the course of three years. So that was long enough and for actually my kind of, my feelings to change and sort of grow. So I, I, um, I think I have, it, it, there's, in that there's that sort of pattern of people having a sort of avoidant personality or, or an anxiety. Anxiety attachments are avoidant attachments. So I, I'm, I'm classically quite avoidant. I'm very good at avoiding stress. Uh, I'm mm. good at avoiding challenges or anything that makes me uncomfortable. Well, what does I, that I, mean to avoid stress if you have a tremendous workload? You're putting 150 dates on the calendar. That can't be But it's a, it's a really stress. enjoyable thing for me. It's not you just, you just love uh, doing it. Stressful. Yeah. But if somebody emails and says, would you come and give a talk about something in an event, I just, oh, just shut it straight down because uh-huh. I, that suddenly is a, a new threatening situation right. that I'd much rather avoid. All those other things are very comfortable. Going out and presenting this very rehearsed, charismatic version of myself every night, that's fine. That's uh-huh. very comfortable. But I, haven't, I, I think I'm generally uh, I'm very good at avoiding stress as opposed to the opposite of that, the sort of anxiety pattern of seeing stress and then just running towards it like a magnet and you know, trying to fix it and maybe making things worse. So the Stoics resonated with me because, of course, they're, you know, they're all about avoiding anxiety, avoiding disturbance. Well, also, it's just not complicating your life unnecessarily. It's like, yeah. it's, it's a, so much of it is for seeing all of the bad things that reliably happen and sort of preloading on the hard drive an acceptance of those things. It's like, I, I think yeah. it was, I think it's Marcus Aurelius. I guess it could have been Seneca, but one of them said, you know, more eloquently than this, but when you get up in the morning, know that you're the moment meet. you leave your house, you're going to meet yeah. assholes, right? You're going to meet yeah. people who will treat you badly, will say offensive things, yeah. will misunderstand you. And the modern analog for me, which I often think about, is it's analogous to the way in which you might play a video game. You know this level of the game mm. is one wherein you will be beset with challenges. You will meet monsters uh, you know, armed with various weapons at various stages, and that's exactly what you should expect, right? You can either play this happily or you can suffer every mm. stage along the way. Yes, there's there's yeah. a much easier relationship with, with fate, isn't there? That was, that was ultimately, I suppose, what they, were, what they were saying, to move in a much easier accordance with with fortune that we don't really give much uh, time and attention to. The, the, a, a, an image that really came out of the writing the book for me, a recurring image of this sort of X equals Y diagonal on a sort of imaginary graph, that if, we, if we're told nowadays to set your goals and believe in yourself enough, and if you do that, you can, you know, you can make your life turn out however you want it to, then you're, if you imagine there's a, a graph where you've got your your aims and goals along one axis and your uh, stuff that life just throws back at you along the other. We're being told that you can crunch this line of your life up, up towards the axis of, of your aims and your goals. Mm. Whereas what the Greeks, and particularly the, sort of the, the later Roman version of Stoicism, was so eloquent about is that this other stuff comes back at you. There is this, there is this you know, fortune, life will throw stuff back at you. And actually what we live is an X equals Y line and making your peace with this balance between your aims and just stuff, just life is a much more, it's a sort of strategic pessimism, I guess, but it's a much more mm. realistic place. And this same, that same idea comes up again and again. You have it in um, Michael Csikszentmihalyi's work on flow, the mm. idea of your ba- balancing your, you know, the, the, the challenges of 
the world with your skill set. And when you reach that X equals Y line, you've kind of got this flow state, which is mm -hmm. a this great place to to be in, regardless of what what skills are at work. Schopenhauer talks about it in in another form. You know, he talks a lot about the stuff he was that life, a little further along the continuum of pessimism. Very yeah. much so, so but yeah. it, but it's still it's yeah. He's he but, he clearly loved the Stoics and the the. The same idea, you know, he talks about if you're playing a game of chess, you know, you start out with a plan, but you can't just stick with that plan throughout because there's this other person playing with yeah. you. There's this other force coming back at you. Freud, when he created psychoanalysis, he, he, his aim was to restore what he called natural, natural unhappiness. Right, yeah. It wasn't to make people happy. No, that was not what yeah. it was for. It was to take unnatural unhappiness and restore what life basically is, which involves a sort of a natural unhappiness and it's it it it's just a really compelling image for me however it's all based on this idea of avoiding anxiety and i think i think what they miss is the value of anxiety and the value yeah. of disturbance as a signal for growth i don't know how we grow unless we appreciate that something's wrong and anxiety is our way of, of well, well actually that's not my reading of the stoic so much as I mean, because how bad is anxiety? It's not a matter of avoiding your fears. It's just fear is yet another one of these things mm. you can easily learn to tolerate. You know, you can move through, whether it's the fear of failing at some endeavor that you're going to try. I mean, you'll fail many times along the way until you succeed in some other way. Well, it may just be how it resonates with the, said, my essentially avoidant pattern, but this mm. idea of avoiding disturbance and all these strategies that they offer to avoid disturbance, I think just... Yeah. just well, it's avoiding a mind that is suffering unnecessarily. It's very Buddhist. I mean, it is. Well, the first very Stoics were, yeah. from, were from the East. Was, yeah. that's, and all the interesting then, you've sort of got these, these Buddhist ideas that then sit in this much more kind of you know, Western rational kind of mode and are then taken right up into Christianity, which of course had to win those stoics over so a lot of the right. same ideas it's an interesting thing where you see these eastern ideas continue up into up into christianity but i yeah. i i i value because this doesn't come naturally for me because i am naturally quite avoidant i now really i value anxiety i tr i try to live with it better than and the than what for me the Stoics mm. felt like they were saying, which is these are all these ways of avoiding it. I, I, I Martha Nussbaum's idea of, of of being a porous rock. The Stoics talk a lot about being a uh, like a a rock with the waves lashing against you. This sort of fortified. It's quite a tense sort of image. You're mm. you're constantly sort of fortified. There's lots of images around you know war and sentries and frontier guards and so on. Whereas she she suggests this more sort of porous idea of well a you know a porous rock that the water could move through or a pebble rolling around on the beach with the water. And I, th I think that's, that's a much nicer mm -hmm. image and more relaxed. You know, the Stoics were kind of, if the Stoics were tense, then the Epicureans were these sort of more sort of relaxed other kind of school that was around at the time. But they didn't really get anything done, which is why I suppose why they didn't really kind of amount to much. The Stoics did. They were big movers and shakers, despite yeah. how complacently it can sound to modern ears. So it still sits really well with me. And I, I, I but I just... And they don't have a huge amount to say about sort of kindness either. That's another thing that mm -hmm. somewhere is sort of feels like it's very important and they don't have a lot to say about compassion. Well, it really is a philosophy of picking your battles, you know, yeah. just, just knowing how to 
steward your own capacity for agitation and unhappiness and cutting your losses. There are many Silicon Valley people and productivity gurus, and you know, my, my friend Tim Ferriss is a major pusher of the Stoics these days. It's so useful to keep your attention on what you know at the end of the day you will wish you had your attention on. You know, I mean, that's just a, mm. such a simple algorithm, and that captures much of what their advice was. You know, I mean, if you know there are three things that you really will wish you had done today, and you manage to live your life so as to do none of them, that's you know, you're doing something yeah. wrong, right? Yeah. Uh, well, one of the uh, one of the sort of media techniques they teach you is you know, if you're going in, into an interview is have three things that you want to say and make sure you say them. And then you'll come out thinking that was right. a, that was a good interview. And I suppose it's a yeah. similar thing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so speaking of that in this interview, are there three things you want to say? And have you said any of them? I, I, I'm hopeless at all those media yeah. techniques, which is why I end up waffling a lot and uh, why I quite enjoy long form podcasts. Yeah. They sit yeah. well with me. You can get around to something eventually that, yeah. that you, you're glad you said. When you look at the, obviously the parallels between Buddhism and Stoicism, do you think there's anything that, and obviously there are differences too, do you think there's anything um, really vital that's lost that the Stoics sort of miss, like when you, when you hold the two up together, that are similar in, in many ways? Well, first I should say is I haven't, I don't consider myself a deep student of the Stoics at all. I mean, I've read you know, a few of the books, but I haven't spent a ton of time with them. And I mean, there's, there's a tremendous amount of wisdom kind of ethical and psychological wisdom in what I've read, and particularly Marcus Aurelius and Seneca. But the methodology of Buddhism is something mm. extra, which mm. I don't think you get. And the clarity with respect to some fundamental insights about the nature of consciousness. There's some resonances in the Western tradition. There are some people who clearly had experiences of selflessness and then tried to understand them in a Western context. Some of the existentialists fill this bill. Uh, certainly, Jean-Paul Sartre had a conception of egolessness, which he wrote about. But there's not a clear... You know, William James had you know, experiences that he spoke very eloquently about. But none of these guys had a methodology that they could use that would produce these experiences in anything like a reliable way. So there really is a, an impressive asymmetry between the East and the West with respect to this particular strand of wisdom for mm. me. I mean, it, it's, when I've written about this, I've said that the comparison is every bit as invidious as the comparison between Eastern and Western medicine, right? So like, medicine is a fundamentally Western thing, and if it works in the East by virtue of something they're doing, it's in many cases an accident. And it's not working by in alignment with the theory that explains to them why it's working. You know, whether it's Ayurveda or Chinese medicine or whatever it is, an understanding of biology is is was discovered in the West and now spread globally. But the East really has that kind of monopoly on a specific meditative insights and mm. their psychological and ethical implications. It's not to say that you can't find a Christian or a Muslim or a Jew here and there who have those experiences, we are, after all, just talking about the nature of consciousness. And so it's available for anyone to interrogate and you know, stumble upon and discover. But 
in terms of you know clear thinking and writing unencumbered by confusing dogmatism on other points i really only find that in the east and in the indian tradition especially and really only super clearly in certain schools of buddhism and in advaita vedanta which is the non-dual teaching in what's nominally called hinduism but really it doesn't relate too much to what people think of as hinduism well, so we're, we're we're very uncomfortable with the idea of transcendence aren't we we've or we've and where we tend to sort of shove it now into our ideas of the supernatural, or maybe even like depth psychology, maybe psychoanalysis is another. It's a sort of a, a world that can be never-ending. Have you had experiences with psychedelics no, or meditation no, or anything no, that has pushed no, you out of your... I haven't, I haven't, mm-hmm. but, I, but I, um, I think, you know, the sort of middle part of life, you start to become more aware of of meaning and where and where to where to find it. I, I so I was a Christian for a long time and then mm. came out of that around the time of university and then was a ardent atheist and a vocal one for some time. And now now I sort of just in terms of talking about transcendence, I sort of my feelings around that now are that that religion at one point or the church at well, one maybe not the church, but re- religion at one point was this phenomenological experiential well experience of the of, of of transcendence that 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 for some people at some point in time in living memory of whatever happened historically whatever that was was a there was a experience of transcendence i think i'm understanding you i think what we call religion is a residue of the fact that certain people had these experiences and talked about them and could kindle these experiences in other people, and then that begins to get formalized and institutionalized as a set of doctrines yeah, and dogmas exactly. and rituals. Because you're also moving out of rituals. memory, so, yeah. you, so you're now having to exactly try and recreate what was a sort of a phenomenological experience into a belief, which is a sort of a, a different thing, and then so dogmas spring up and practices spring up, and, and then that becomes institutionalized and that becomes powerful and that becomes politicized and so on and now what you end up with is which is what i instinctively balked against as a fresh atheist is something that i still feel it i i feel is still badly and no longer does but badly trying to articulate pointing back to a feeling of transcendence and the importance of finding transcendence somewhere and I think that's yeah, but they're, important. Yeah, they're just doing it more or less ineptly. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's freighted with so many other ideas that produce unnecessary suffering for people yeah. that it's just, it's a horror show in the end. I mean, just, I mean, just look yeah. at... But there's basic urges to kind of transform our lives and to, which, or to, and to transcend and to, which generally get poured into, I guess, money, fame, those sorts of things mm. that we think will do it. Are essentially still, you know, they're kind of religious urges, aren't they? They're, so I, I think that's, I think that that need to to transcend, and maybe it's just part of. So, but when you say the need to transcend, yeah, to to get out of your own ego, you know, if the first the first half of life, I guess, is it's about becoming somebody. Well, we've we've absorbed these narratives, we've absorbed these powerfully charged ideas when we're young about who we are and what our relationship is to the world, how powerful we are or are not, 
and we've adapted to those because we're adapting creatures, and then we've gone through life playing those out, these historically charged clusters of energy that we've brought into our relationships and played out the maybe the parental sort of imago or the parental kind of, you know, relationship we played out again and again in our adult romantic relationships, or we we sought the same things, we found the same patterns again and again. And then I think sort of in middle age, so I'm 47 now, I think you start to kind of, it's like that's, that's run out, like you've done that, mm. done that for a long time. And I think, I think it's, you know, time to become aware of, well, what am I authentically if I'm not, if I'm not just playing out these, these, uh, these misconstrued, these misunderstandings or these, you know, these messages that I've been given and I've, you know, I've, I've absorbed. We, wh- who are we authentically? And, and somehow, I think if you don't face those questions, then you've kind of run out of, run out of these ideas and the second half of life mm. can become difficult. And I think, you know, some sort of mindfulness is important. I think some kind of tracing back of what are the repetitive patterns in my life and where do they where do they go back? And are there other options? Are there other possibilities? But this is all, it's all a sort of transcendence, isn't it? It's all a sort of stepping outside of these comfortable patterns that are just playing out again and again, as I think they do in the first half of life, and seeing if there's other possibilities. And I guess as a, I don't know, as a, as a magician, we magicians fit comfortably into that kind of sort of hole that's left. I'm sort of changing the subject now, I suppose, but mm. the Cultural. Well, well you, could, you could fit comfortably into the other hole. You could start your own religion if you just wouldn't admit the mechanisms you were using. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. You tell me. Is it far-fetched to think that, that there could have been charlatans 2,000 years ago who had a truly sophisticated understanding of stage magic that would explain the effect they had on people? Or is this too recent? human invention for anyone 2,000 years ago to have been a good I don't know. Magician. It to go back to the, you know, the oracle at Delphi. There was clearly some sort of trickery involved, you know, in terms of how this... Well, maybe not, because in that case, you're talking about, well, you could be talking about people using psychedelics as well, but in the context of a culture where people believe in magic I and mean, they believe in otherworldly explanations for everything that's happening to then just tell them give them yet more of that explanatory hardware you're not going up against any inborn or conditioned skepticism you're not meeting skeptics for the most part you're not meeting people who have a modern no. evidentiary no. criteria at all and so to tell them that the sky god demands x y and z you're meeting the most suggestible, confirmationally biased people on Earth, right? Imagine the kind of frame of belief. It was we. It's so easy to think back as ourselves now, and, and right. think back and you're meeting just, the children. Such a, such a different world. You're meeting the yeah. children of human history, right? Yeah. I mean, this was there was no science in most of these contexts. It's just the idea of disconfirming a hypothesis mm. or running an experiment. It's all of this is. I mean, we have a kind of commonsensical, natural aptitude for some of this, right? Like, if you want to see what's on the other side of a wall, you get up and look, mm. right? But I think it would be very easy to perpetuate a belief in magic in a world where everyone already believes in magic. Mm. Except, of course, so many, 
so many of those stories of the miracles and so on seem to be these so, things that have so that's my question is is there for instance do, do you know the um when did he die i think he died about five years ago but the, the south indian guru sai baba are you aware of him oh, with, with the giant yeah, afro yeah, yeah. yeah so he was he clearly yeah. I, mean, I think he he's known to have had some background as a, as a stage magician yes, and right, yeah. you, you can see him on youtube you know palming he his his act was often to materialize uh, vibhuti the sacred ash mm. from his hands he would just come by and you know and move his fingers and just magically this ash would rain down and he would also materialize pendants and other jewelry for his mm. uh, certain of his devotees and you, you can see him you know palming things yeah. and going back to some you know table or urn that he was being handed and retrieving some object from you know its base he's a an awkward magician yeah. right well that which is normally the giveaway isn't it yeah. it's, and it's the same with the with the faith healers and others if you uh or psychic mediums when when there's a when there's a trick involved when they're hot reading as opposed to cold reading when they're just passing mm. off information they already know as opposed to right. just saying stuff and making it fit then you kind of go okay well then they're the tricks as opposed to the, you know sincerely believe but are deluded but I, I, I think even that sort of binary distinction is, is not really, I don't know if it really represents the kind of our capacity for cognitive dissonance and self-justification. Oh, no. I mean, yeah, it's no, just, it doesn't. No, yeah. There are two separate tracks that you yeah. could be running on simultaneously, but one can leverage the other considerably. So, yeah. like, so someone with your skill at misdirection mm. or close-up magic, I mean, there's just the fact that you can remove somebody's watch and pocket it as you're talking to them and then hand it back to them and say you're missing your watch mm. you must know enough about the history of magic to have some sense of when certain effects were first achieved right and then it would be implausible to think that 700 years ago someone could do that thing as well as the thing that you know houdini did for the first time or david blaine did for the yeah, first well, time well I'm, I'm not much of a scholar but of uh, the history of magic but i think most of western secular theatrical magic comes out of those sort of traditions so i think it's it's you know as we lose as we lose touch with the kind of cultural myths that you know where all that magic has its place it becomes this you know vaudevillian thing but it's born i think it's born out of the same as a you know a line that goes yeah. right back through all of that so I, a lot of it could have been done two thousand years ago yeah, yeah yeah i do but I, I don't i don't look at the you know the story of christ and think oh well that's no, no here's no, how no, he palmed no, the nor wine do I. I don't think yeah. i don't think that's what's going on at all i think well no i mean just just to be clear i, I think they're obviously extraordinarily transformative experiences people can have yeah and having had them i mean then they're the outliers who have them in such a way that they're radically transformed and mm, people can mm. tell you get around some of these people. And, you know, I've had my fair share of opportunity to be with the far outliers of spiritual athletes. I mean, people who spent, you know, 20 years on silent meditation retreats and, you know, as many years in caves. And I mean, these are mostly Tibetan practitioners, but I've been with, I've just met extraordinary people in, in several different traditions at this point. And, you know, leaving their, religious worldviews aside, I mean, the, these efforts are almost always made in the context of some kind of religious mm. worldview. These are not secular meditation adepts, but they're clearly people who can develop an extraordinary degree of compassion and a seemingly supernatural lack of self-concern. 
So what you feel in their presence is a free attention that until you've noticed it in them, you know, recognize that you have never seen this in somebody else. A free right? attention. What do you yeah, mean? Yeah, like, so like, so I mean, just to be with someone who has absolutely no concern for what you think of them. They're not reading in your reaction to them any possible deficit in them, right? Mm. And this, you know, as described, this can also sound like psychopathy, but marry that to just total goodwill and interest mm. in you and your suffering. All they want is for you to be happy, then they, they want nothing from you, right? So you can meet people like this. The classic example would be somebody in a Buddhist context who has spent just a ton of time practicing what's called loving-kindness meditation, where they're just they're spending all their time trying to maximize the emotion of just wishing people happiness and freedom from suffering. And every time their mind wanders to anything else, you know, a thought of lunch mm -hmm. or their you know memory of yesterday, or they come back to this feeling, which may, you know many of us who have done MDMA or otherwise known as ecstasy have touched this feeling, you know, mm -hmm. pharmacologically, where it's just suddenly you're plunged into a kind of well of positive social affect mm. that is just so much better than where you tend to be, mm. which is kind of neurotically self-referential in dialogue with other mm. people, you know, with strangers or friends. And, you know, and occasionally you punch through to a kind of a new level of love and uncomplicated engagement with somebody, you know, even, you know, it could be a, person you're meeting for the first time but the common experience on mdma is to just get shoved in that direction further than you ever really dreamed was possible and there are meditative analogs to that and, and loving kindness is mm -hmm. one but so you can meet people who just they're not collapsing back on themselves yeah. in a way that you again i mean the, the experience for me was came pretty vividly with this one teacher i met in india named Punjaji. And it helped. He spoke perfect English. So, you know, in many of these circumstances, you're working through a translator. Yeah. And so your your attention is divided. You know, you've got the, the meditation master you're talking to there, but you've got the translator over here. It's distracting. And with Punjaji, he spoke perfect English. So you just, there was nothing to do but look in his eyes the whole time. And he was somebody who never collapsed back on himself in a way that you, again, my experience was seen something absent in him that had been present in basically every other pair of eyes I've ever looked into, you know, certainly adult eyes. So having met people like that who are shockingly charismatic in this one way, in this kind of special way, which seems to connect with an extraordinarily benign and you know, positive ethical engagement with other people. And again, there's, I need to assure my atheist friends that I'm aware of all the ways in which this can be fraudulent and mm. misused and there are people who can fake this and mm. all of that's true, right? But it's also just a fact that you can find people who are, as I've said before, they're like the tiger woods of compassion, the far outlier of these positive mental states. And there's something amazingly compelling about that, mm. which explains the cult-like following that somebody like Jesus, say, whoever he actually was, could have had. It's no surprise to me that you could start a religion around 
a sufficiently compelling demonstration of this personal change mm-hmm. that could have mm-hmm. come in any one life. And you only need a couple of dozen of these people in history to take it to some great extent to explain what we have now, which is the the, the terrifying residue of, yeah. of all of those spiritual efforts. Yeah. You know? I wonder or, if it, part of it, as you're describing, it sounds like a kind of comfort with a with a a sort of an uh, an open system of being as opposed to a closed system and that i i think we particularly in these kind of you know tribal polarized times we are hugely uncomfortable with ambivalence and uncomfortable with the fact that life is not only complex and messy and ambiguous but also that the things that we reduce to nouns like happiness and and probably even the self are just are, are actually active they're verbs they're yeah. things they're yeah. processed, they're it, doing things aren't they exactly and uh that's a it's an, un, it's an uncomfortable thing to remain open to and as you were describing that it, it's sort of it because that is just part of growing up isn't it part of growing up is is tolerating ambiguity surely and even in a in a conversation with uh with people as you're describing those those characters it feels even there like it's just a, it's a an, an open how we're just we're not open to people we're you know we're constantly you know worrying about what we're going to say next or what you know and so on and just it's an interesting uh, interesting effect if that is a big part of it as to you know the effect that it can have of just being and people uh, experience open, this yeah. change in themselves situationally so you know, people go to Burning Man, and you know, leaving aside the drugs involved, which I actually haven't been to Burning Man, but I've heard that psychedelics are more or less on every page of the menu. But just putting yourself in a context that is outside mm. your normal routine can suddenly make a far wider and 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 more positive range of emotion available to you. And this happens when people go on retreat. This happens when even just travel to a foreign country. I mean, part of the, the, the reset psychologically that many people experience traveling is that you, I mean, you go to you know, some faraway place like India where everything is different. The smells mm. are different, the colors are different, the sounds are different, and your expectations of just how an hour on earth should pass mm. are different. And you're not, I mean, you might have some touristic agenda or not, but you can really be kind of lifted out of yourself by travel because you don't have all of these touch points of your yeah. routine and then you, you meet someone in a cafe and you're available to talk to a stranger in a way that you aren't in your hometown mm. at yeah. all and most of us move through life fairly guarded and we're just busy we're in a rush just adding the fact that you're in a rush changes everything mm. you know and it's interesting to think about consciously resetting some of these things to yeah not just resetting but also just expanding the imagination because ultimately it's only your imagination that's gonna that you have to make these choices and if your imagination expands your number of choices expands so as you as you try and you know face the mysterious aspects of of life and and grow and grow up and and um do these sorts of things well you need to be able to make more and more choices so yeah it's Mm. again it's just it's it's it is it's comfort with it's comfort with openness and not just we just always looking to for things to close down and feed back to us what we what we already know and that's just uh, 
that's the antithesis of the religiously doctrinaire authoritarian attitude, mm. what you just described. Being comfortable with not knowing, mm. right? Which this yes, is it's a, the anxiety to that. It's, yeah, it's the anxiety of your when your your authority system is doesn't doesn't have the answers. Yeah, that creates the, yeah. the fundamentalism. And it, ironically, that the science is often billed as the one that's not comfortable with not knowing. But science, I mean, science is the this mm. in practice just the admission of how much we don't know and being comfortable with the the open endedness of our inquiry. There are a million things we're busily trying to find out, but the frontier of any question you could pose, there is just this very clear encounter with human ignorance, which mm. you have to be comfortable with. I mean, this is just, this is our circumstance perpetually. I've been beginning to ask people some rapid fire bonus questions at the end of these podcasts, and then I'll release them separately to subscribers. If you had one piece of advice for a person who wants to succeed in your field, and it's your field is a little hard to define, maybe you can be as broad as you want. What would it be? I think any sort of success is talent plus energy. So you develop your talent and then you have the energy to put it out there and get it out there. If you just have all the talent and no energy, no one's going to see it. You're not going to get anywhere. If you have all the mm. energy but no talent, you're not going to produce much. So it's always talent and energy and everything else is uh, fortune, which you leave to fortune. I wasn't planning to ask this, but at what point did you actually succeed reach a, a level of success in what you were endeavoring to do that was just, you had, had reached some kind of cruising altitude where you just um, were no I, longer just wondering whether or not this, any of this was going to pay off. I had three years of doing TV specials that were sort of there, but I wasn't really, um, like, wasn't quite allowing me to sort of financially, you know, support myself. I was mm. still just going out and gigging as a magician in the way I had been before. And then maybe somewhere around 2003, so about three years into it. I did this Russian roulette special, which mm -hmm. got a lot more attention, and I started doing a, a stage show. And I think at that point, it became a sustainable thing. Uh, up until then, I'd been at this strange bit where I was like, I was on TV, but I was also the guy in a restaurant going around the tables. And I remember right. one Amazing. table saying to me, oh, you look like that guy on television. I was going, no, that is me. And they wouldn't believe it, because right. I was basically a rose seller in this, uh, in this restaurant. Right. Nice. Nice. Well. I might leave that in the main podcast because that's interesting. Back to bonus questions. What, if anything, do you wish you had done differently in your 20s or 30s, or you could even sneak in the first half of your 40s if you care? Well, I didn't come out until I, like, until I was 30. Come out as a gay man. Come out yeah. as a gay woman. Come out <laughs> as a gay man until I was 30. So I... You were 30 or you were, you were in your 30s? I was... I think I was 30. I uh -huh. think I was 30. So that was late. But it's a bit like trying to pull a, you know, a, a string out of a jar that's when it's just full of, or pull a thread out that's just like a whole bundle of different threads. I don't know how you do it without pulling everything else out. If I hadn't been focused more on sort of trying to impress people and, and avoid subjects of sexuality by presenting a glittering surface, which mm -hmm. I think is what you do, then I don't think I'd be doing what I do now. So I don't know. I, honestly, I don't really... Is that... Let really just, have any regrets. I, ha I haven't done the math, but you're you're not that much younger than me. So is that anachronistic to have been in the closet that late at that point? I think or being was, a Christian really helps with that as well. Yeah, that's you're right. Just delaying this sort of it's a lovely smoke screen for just not really. Are, are your are your parents still are you are they still alive? Yes. Yeah. Are, yeah. are they still 
devout Christians or they're not Christians at all. No. Oh, so you be, you became a Christian independent of them? Yeah, or? yeah, oh. yeah. I I actually went to like a Bible reading class when I was very young. Maybe like six. Teacher I really liked ran one, so I went to her house every Sunday with a group. And by the time I was old enough to realize, oh, this is now a belief that I have that not everybody has. It was too late to you know change. Right. It was it was it was in there. So uh, yeah. So that's how that's. That's why it was also quite easy to come out of because there was no uh, real pressure from anybody to right. stay in. This isn't going the way bonus questions usually so, go. I'm so a, I'm terribly no, 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 it's on me. I, I keep asking. I, I don't normally ask follow-up questions, so we're still in the main podcast, I think. Ten years from now, what do you think you'll regret doing too much of or too little of at this point in your life? Wow. I'm learning, I think, how to properly be in a relationship learning how to kind of learning how to balance that kind of Nietzschean urge of become mm-hmm. who you are everybody else get out the way I'm on a path with just being the best version of yourself in a relationship mm-hmm. so I think it probably took me a whole relationship before the one I'm in now to kind of realize that and now I'm trying to do a better job so I suppose and you're married right or, or you're no no no, no uh, at all. I've got a partner but okay I'm not married. okay so I think uh, that that feels like the learning curve that I'm on now, balancing balancing those those twin urges. So I suppose at some point I'll look back and see time oh. time is, wasted. Is, is gay marriage legal in the UK? It's compulsory. No, no it, it, is, it is. Yeah, it is legal now. It's all, okay. all legalized. When did that happen? Was that recent? Or were you you before uh, or after the states? Ooh, good question. I don't know. I don't know the exact dates uh, oh. in comparison with the states. But yeah, it's sort of it's sort of crept in over the last few years back to my text here what book should everybody read i i really love there's a book called um what matters most by james hollis who Mm. is a uh i don't know if you've met him no i don't know that one he's a jungian psychoanalyst Uh and um it's quite floridly written um but I, I think is is tremendous, and I've recommended that book to a lot of people. Oh, so good. in in that won't be the answer everybody gives. No, I I, I don't know of that book. I'll check it out. What negative experience, one that you would not wish to repeat, has most profoundly changed you for the better? I think yeah, I think being a sort of confused and closeted, trying to work it all out, gay man or boy or young man. Because that's horrible. The sheer amount of shame that you start to carry around with you, and then when you do come out. I think the feeling of liberation doesn't come from, hey, I'm gay, and the world knows. Right. It's realizing people don't care, really don't care mm-hmm. in the nicest way. It's that lovely mm-hmm. line of, you know, you realize, I said, you worry a lot less about what other people would think, think of you if you realize how seldom they do. Right. So right. That, that made it all worth it. What worries you most about our collective future? I think we need to rediscover and depoliticize kindness and, uh, the truth and humanity lie in the dialogue between sides. Uh, at the moment, that feels like the thing we need to mm. take on board the most. Yeah. But it doesn't really worry me because I think we will. I don't, We're going to do it. Yeah. yeah. By the skin of our teeth. Yeah. If you could solve just one mystery as a scientist or historian or journalist, just answer one question, what would it be? I was going to say, it was the old belligerent Christian in me wondering, uh, uh, what actually happened around the resurrection? Because mm-hmm. that would be that would be quite fascinating to to know and for the world to know. That would shake things up a bit. 
Yeah, I suppose that's what comes to mind. I don't. Yeah. Know. It's probably. I don't think yeah. it's the most important questions. I think. I think there are interesting ways of relating to religion without that being the center part of it. But because mm. for me that was such a central thing that it all fell okay. off, succeeded. Well, on. maybe this next question will okay. uh, send you back to Christianity again as well. If you could resurrect just one person from history and put them in the world today, and you could give them the benefit of a, a modern education, who would you bring back? I've primed you with this word, resurrect. Mm. <laughs> Who do you want on our team in 2018 who's in our past? It's so tempting to say all the obvious answers, isn't it? Um, maybe, uh, I think we could do with a bit of Marcus Aurelius right now. I think mm -hmm. we could do with a philosopher king. So yeah. yeah, why not? Yeah, he would be on my short list, definitely. Okay, finally, the Jurassic Park question. If we're in a position to recreate the T-Rex, <laughs> do we do it? <laughs> oh, God. Are, you, are you in favor? Um... I'll tell you what Dawkins said after you answer. Oh, wow. I, uh, yes, it's just us catching up ethically with what we can do technologically, isn't it? That's the, I think we, uh, obviously we do. Yeah, obviously that's right. We yeah. Do. yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're in good company with Dawkins. Yeah. He's, he's in favor. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm with you. I think it's on some level, it's gotta be fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, this has been great finally connect with you on the podcast well thank you for uh this has been my a lovely welcome to uh to la and yeah. uh it's an honor to be here as a big fan yeah. of your podcast it's very exciting to sit here and see how it all works yeah yeah i hear a rumor that you're thinking about uh doing a podcast yourself i have been thinking about doing a podcast yeah. myself yes i think that would be an interesting thing uh to do so we'll have to uh after this nice talk about how it all works yeah yeah you we'll tell do. me your secrets that's only mine cool well until next time thank you for having me <laughs>